had this thing on. Did anybody hear me? I've been talking for 15 minutes, but... Uh, <laughs> and you were glad that I didn't have a microphone on. didn't have to listen to me. We were studying Genesis chapter 3. We did not go very deep in every nuance of the biblical narrative of the fall. Genesis 3, as I said last week, you can not overstate the importance of the biblical account of the fall, the biblical Adam, who is a real person who faced a real temptation. I am so grateful for friends out at the Master's College who are writing a book to be published on the historical Genesis chapter 3. I'm still waiting to hear when the date will be published, but from what I am told, uh, it is uh, going through its editing process right now. Abner Chow is uh, doing his best, and uh, uh, I've been him and Han, I'm on the fence as to whether to respond to him on Facebook to take on uh, editing uh, his uh, contribution. Uh, I don't know if I have time because there's a deadline by this Friday, but uh, it'd be fun to do. Uh, you know that I'm passionate about uh, Genesis. I'm passionate about creation. We've been studying about it. And I want to draw a connection as we have talked about the fall of man into sin with so many preachers today proclaiming a gospel that does not save, proclaiming that uh, we come to the Lord for so many issues, better marriage, a better you, you fill in the blank. You come to Jesus because you are hopeless and helpless to save yourself. It is an issue of sin and nothing else. We, in our fallenness, were hopeless to save ourselves. Utter helplessness. That is the position we were in our lostness. We can never study too much how great a debt we owe to Christ. Through many years of disregard for the environment, Many places of our nation have been polluted with things that can make us sick. As I've tried to detoxify my body and figure out what's going on health-wise, whether it's stuff that you ingest food-wise or, or from all the smog of nine years living in Southern California, often people living near polluted areas didn't know there was so much pollution so close to their homes. The pollution wasn't going to go away by ignoring it, but it was, that's what most people tried to do. Just ignore it. It'll go away. In 1980, our government set up a program called Superfund. Anybody uh, ever read about it, study about it? Superfund? To identify and clean up the worst sites of pollution all around the nation. You might know that California has 96 Superfund sites. I found that out when I was living out there. 
If you live in the San Fernando, were to uh, live in the San Fernando Valley, I used to live in what uh, some of the elders at Grace Church called uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. We lived in North Hollywood. You read the uh, headlines like of the North Hollywood shootout and all the other great history, but that's where uh, my beloved family and I lived. In the San Fernando Valley, where I lived, was one of those Superfund areas. The groundwater is contaminated with chemicals that can hurt your body, and so people can, can no longer use the water from the ground. So the city of L.A. pipes in water from the Colorado River. That is why our water bill was extremely expensive. So I'd make sure to limit how much my irrigation system watered the lawn because we were charged for every drop of water. The government is now trying to clean the groundwater. Maybe someday it can be made safe again. Of far greater consequence is not water contamination and pollutants all around us. It is pollutants within. You are contaminated. God looks at you and I like we are a Superfund site. But our pollution is not from chemicals, it's from sin. And to make matters worse, the pollution of sin has spread to every part of every person. I use those words intentionally, every part. And it brings death to every person. That is what the Bible, that is what theologians refer to as total depravity. Total depravity is total pollution of our souls. So whatever became of sin, as we have people preaching from pulpits about everything but sin, it's not just a matter of the postmodern attitude of no absolutes and thus no sin. The truth of sin is established every moment of every day by what we do and what we see others do and goes down to even our affection level, what we desire. It's documented in our newspapers and magazines and television, and it's documented in our own hearts. We want to look at the nature and the extent of sin. The point is that we are radically sinful. So much so that we can't take even the smallest step towards God unless He first intervenes. Total depravity is a phrase, it is terminology to the corruption of sin extending to all people and affecting the entire person. Our intellect, our emotions, our will, so that Nothing in us can commend us to God. So let's contemplate that for a moment. As early as the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, we are told that the Lord saw how great man's wickedness had become. As man multiplied, so did sin. Man's wickedness had become 
so that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's Genesis 6-5. That's why Jeremiah the prophet records for us about our hearts. He says, you want to know about the heart of man? Contrary to what the newspapers record or some well-meaning school teacher, teacher saying about that young child, well, they got a good heart. No. It is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Each of us could undoubtedly be much worse than we are. I'll, I'll give you that. There are, there are some people that manifest their depravity more than others. However, what total depravity conveys is that sin has affected the whole person, our, the every part of our being, down to the very core, the root of our being. We do not become sinners because we sin and we establish it that way. We sin because we by nature are sinners. That is our identity. To quote Lorraine Bentner, whose book on the Reformed Doctrine of De Predestination has probably helped people to understand the doctrines of grace as any other modern work, writes this, and I quote. He says, The doctrine of total inability or total depravity, which declares that men are dead in sin, does not mean all men are equally bad, nor that any man is as bad as he could be nor that anyone is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is evil in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God, or to do anything meriting salvation. His corruption is extensive, but not necessarily intensive. Unquote. You see what we're getting at? That is the whole point of the story that Jesus tells about the Good Samaritan. If the summary of the law is to love God with your muchness, everything that you are, have, and do. Jesus teaches us that, guess what? You don't. We fail at the very root of the law. We do not love God perfectly. And that ought to condemn us and help us recognize that no matter how much you think you love God, you don't love God. We are God-haters by nature. We are born that way. Uh, that is uh, the failure of the uh, rich young ruler when he says, you know, I, I've kept these things. No, you haven't perfectly loved God and you haven't perfectly loved your neighbor as yourself. So let's, so let's make some connections as far as the, the fall is that we looked at uh, last week. The story begins with the fall of humanity recorded in Genesis 3. It is a story that highlights several steps in the first temptation. 
We looked at the, the, the way that they moved into sin. There's, there's the doubting of the benevolence of God, the doubting of the Word of God, and aspiring to be as God. But our concern this morning in these few minutes we've got remaining is the result of that fall. The result is described as, in, in one word, is what? When you, when you eat, of it, you, eat of it, you will die, death. In one word, to summarize it, it is death. Now, we'll look at in just a moment how people redefine this. You cannot undo the biblical metaphor of death. And we're going to look at Paul's in a moment. Death does not speak of mere imperfection or a weakening of one's innate capacity to do good. Death speaks of death. He said in his instructions to his people in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis, verses 16 and 17, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. So Genesis 3 speaks of, well, they did eat, and yes, they did die, both eventually physically and immediately spiritually. Unable to love and rightly respond to God, just as a corpse is unable to respond to any attempts to resuscitation. You know, any of our people in the medical realm in the church can let you know how frustrating it is when you're doing CPR on somebody that you're trying to resuscitate, somebody's dead. They won't respond. I've told you before and I'll tell you again, because of the metaphor of death in the Bible, I have done dozens and dozens of funerals and I have yet to have somebody complain about how I did their funeral. Nobody has ever stuck their hand out of the casket and said, you told my friends this, and I don't agree with you. Nobody's ever argued with me from the grave. Everyone loved my sermons on their funerals because they haven't spoken up. To be a sinner is not merely to be morally imperfect or unable to achieve your full potential. It is to be in an utterly ruined state, unable to deliver yourself, and in which you will perish, and justly so. You know, this is the, the major tenet of Arminian theology believes man is never so completely corrupted by sin that he cannot receive the gospel. They would postulate that he is able to respond as he has a free will. I'd say no because he's a slave to sin. And whenever I get these 
uh, essays in from, from, from students that are, are saying that the reason for evil entering the world, their papers on theodicy, when they say, well, the reason why the world's so evil is because man sinned in, in the garden, because man has free will. I said, oh, so you want to get God off the hook, so you want to blame man because he's got free will. And I, I'll ask him questions to help drive to the logical conclusion. Give me a verse. Give me a verse that explicitly teaches that you have a free will. Now, uh, dangling that before you, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, if you will, and let's look ever so briefly at Paul picking up the teaching from Genesis that you will indeed die eventually physically, but immediately spiritually. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul reflects uh, uh, in chapter 1 on the greatness of the gospel. And the gospel becomes more and more exceedingly glorious the more we recognize the condition God saved us out of. If you had something to contribute to your salvation, you've got something to boast of. But if you are a corpse in the casket waiting to go under the dirt, hopeless and helpless, that is the condition. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. And you, as Paul looks eyeball to eyeball with the saints of God, and as he looks them eyeball to eyeball and teaches them deep theology, the reality of their condition, he says, you were dead. You were dead in your tra- trespasses and sins. Dead in transgressions and sins. Now, people try to redefine that deadness. I was at a conference uh, probably a year ago, and somebody was uh, asking uh, a friend, I'll let the guilty party remain anonymous, but they were asking Steve Lawson uh, about... Uh, well, how do you explain to somebody uh, that they were really dead uh, if they don't believe that they're dead? Well, you've got you to gotta redo the Bible. You've got you to gotta rip this verse out. You've got to redefine deadness. You can't reformulate a metaphor to your liking. Dead only speaks of one thing. There have only been three basic views of human nature apart from God's grace. First view is the Pelagian view. This is the view of every optimist. They might vary as to how healthy that they believe human beings are. Some would argue on the extreme spectrum of Pelagianism that people are very, very well. And these are the people that you know, if you're schooled in Scripture, that you really get nauseated. 
Others, at not the extreme realm of Pelagianism, would, would admit that they're not as morally healthy as one day they might be, but everyone in the camp of Pelagius would agree that the world is getting better and better. Patui. Let's move on. There is the more realistic, getting a little closer to the truth here, the semi-Pelagian view. This is the group of every realist. Not an optimist, but a realist. They observe rightly that there is, there's war, there's disease, there's starvation, there's poverty, and every other problem that we face that should have been fixed by now. And since they have not been fixed, since we live in a fallen world and a God-cursed earth where there is a plethora of evil all around us, there must be something wrong with human nature. But they still contend that the situation is not helpless. It is bad or it's desperate, but it's not helpless. After all, we've blown ourselves off the surface of the, haven't blown ourselves off the, the surface of the planet yet. There's no need to call the mortician yet. Like the guy, uh, what was it, around two years ago, I was doing some work for a gentleman in the area, and as we were cutting down and cutting up a tree in his backyard, uh, he gave me this scenario. He, he said that if you take a baby that is uh, conceived from lust, they are, they are doomed to turn out bad versus the baby that is conceived from pure love, they'll turn out good, though they're conceived by two sinful parents. And I was scratching my head wondering, what are you talking about? And that is one example of, well, inconsistency, yes, but bad theology, that too. (laughs) The Pelagian says, well... We're alive and well on planet Earth. Semi-Pelagian, we're alive but sick. There's something wrong. The third view of man's nature apart from God's grace is what Paul articulates here in Ephesians 2. That is, that man is not alive and well. Man is not even alive but sick. Man is dead and depraved. He's dead like a spiritual corpse. He is unable to make a single move towards God, think a right thought about God, or even respond to God unless God first brings this spiritually dead corpse to life. And that's exactly what Paul says happened to every saint at the church that he addressed. He says, you were dead. You were like Lazarus, dead, and God says, come forth. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and it was manifest, it was played out as you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. One thing, too, we, we, we also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That was our condition. 
Verse 2, we were gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, loving our sin, following it as slaves, following its desires, its thoughts. John Gerstner, professor at uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, compared this description that Paul gives to what horror stories call a zombie. Now, unfortunately, as a teenager, I saw too many of those. I know exactly what he's talking about. A person who has died, but is still up on his feet walking around. Not only that, the walking human corpse is putrefying. It's rotting away. Apart from Jesus Christ, these sinning human corpses are the living dead. Walking around, don't have the decency to lay down anywhere. That is deadness. Dead in transgressions and sins. And even actively practicing evil. Though we are dead to God, apart from Christ, we were alive to our wickedness. Alive to wickedness. As Paul continues there in Ephesians 2, he says, thirdly, you were, you were slaves. Enslaved is the word he uses. In 2 Peter 2.19, we, uh, we studied about false teachers. And one of the characteristics of an unbeliever, one who does not have the work of regeneration in their life, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. They unbelieve, uh, you know, these false teachers that Peter introduced us to were, were mastered by their greed and their sexual passions. Pawns of Satan taken captive to do his will. That's what Paul writes to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.26. You know, our, our, our greatest enemies on the earth are the world, the flesh, and the devil that we looked at last week. Every form of temptation that comes at us. Those are the ways of the world in verse 2 of Ephesians 2. As sons of disobedience. We think as the world thinks without Christ. Without regard for our relationship to God or our final destiny. And because we thought as the world thinks, we acted as the world acts. When, when people come for counseling... Unbelievers for marriage counseling or, or involvement with their young person, which, which is in re rebellion, or sexual sins, or you fill in the blank. Are you surprised? No. Sinners do what sinners do. They're enslaved to their sin. Before Christ, we were enslaved to the flesh because our natural desire was to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature and follow its desires and thoughts. We wanted what we wanted. We, we lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging. Why, why restrain ourselves from that which is pleasing? Just like Eve said, it's pleasing to the eye. We want what we want regardless of God's law or the effect that what we want to do has on other people. So what if the drinking wrecks my liver? Or the drugs, or you fill in the blank, the extramarital affair to give me satisfaction. You, you do exactly what Adam and Eve done, uh, or, or even Lucifer. 
what you long after, you undo everything by going after the forbidden fruit. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave of sin. We could look after example after example of those enslaved to their sin. Fourth, Paul Paul, uh, not only says that we were uh, uh, dead in transgressions and sins, actively practicing evil, not passive participants, we're enslaved. Number four, by nature, God's wrath. You know, so... And instead of falsely going to unbelievers and saying, hey, God loves you and has a great plan for your life, out of love we inform people, you know what? God's wrath abides on you. You are going to be judged if you don't turn to Jesus. You're an object of the wrath of God. The writer of Hebrews said it's a, it's a dreadful, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 30, and 31. People, I don't think a lot of times people take wrath seriously because they don't take sin seriously. You know, I, was, I was contemplating with some brothers this week as we were studying. Have you ever thought that, we like to think about how God is glorified in the redemption of sinners in His presence in heaven as He blesses them for all of eternity. But God is justly glorified in also pouring out His wrath on those that rebel against Him in hell forever. Nothing is more reasonable than that the wrath of a holy God should rise against sin. That is why it is just for a sinner to go to hell. The Old Testament uses more than 20 words to express the idea of God's wrath, and more than 600 important passages deal with it. By nature, we're children of wrath. As if that weren't enough. Dead in trespasses, pursuing sin, enslaved to it, under the curse of God, Paul continues in chapter 3 of Romans. If you want to turn over there to Romans 3, from from Ephesians 2 to Romans 3, he spends verses 9 through 20 of Romans 3 summarizing the condition of every human being apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. You know, from the, from the top of man's head to the tip of his toes. You know, he goes down through man's anatomy, how, how it's wickedness. It's devoted to its enslavement to sin. And in this, he unpacks how that Jews are no better off than Gentiles and vice versa. Instead, all are alike under sin and all are subject to the wrath and final judgment of Almighty God. And so, rather than read all the verses, verses 9 through 20, look just briefly at verses 10 and 11, a snippet here. Verse 10. Excuse me, I'm still in Ephesians. Let me get there. You guys all got there. 
Where is, where is Paul borrowing from here in his letter to the Romans? Anybody remember? Isaiah. And he says, there is none righteous, not even what? Not even one. How many understands? None. How many seeks for God? None. Stop for just a moment. Before Christ intervened in our lives in His terrific salvation and His regenerative power to bring us to life out of deadness, our moral nature was that we weren't righteous. Our sinful mind, we didn't understand. You could reason with us in the grave all you wanted if you were a believer evangelizing us. But, to, but at that time, we didn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. We were natural men. We didn't understand. Thirdly, we didn't seek God. That it, we were captive to do His will. Dr. George Zemeck, in one of his books, as he's talking about human faculties, he says, human faculties have been radically affected. He says, depravity is total in that it deeply touches each person noetically, volitionally, and emotionally. Now, I'm assuming that you may have heard about the noetic effects of sin. When we talk about the effects of, of the fall upon us, the noetic effect, even our thought process is twisted. It doesn't make sense. We, we can't make sense of the gospel. It is illogical. Now, verses 10 and 11, Paul gives a serious, devastating picture of the human race because it portrays human beings as unable to do even a single thing either to please, understand, or seek after God. Sin corrupts the heart, the mind, and the will. You see why we say that uh, people don't make a big enough deal of, of sin? It's, it's a worse picture. It's a bleaker picture than we realize. When you came to faith in Christ... You are more lost than you realize. And the more we study this together, the more it unpacks the greatness of the gospel and the glory of Christ. As we understand deeper and more broadly what God saved us from. And our moral nature doesn't, doesn't mean merely that we are a bit less righteous than we need to be to please God and somehow get to heaven. From God's perspective... And that's the only perspective that counts. From God's perspective, sinners have no righteousness at all. James Montgomery Boyce, as he unpacks the doctrines of grace, he puts it this way, or put it this way before he went home to be with the Lord. He, uh, he uses the illustration of human righteousness as monopoly money. And I, I picked this out and like it because uh, uh, m my kids have been learning how to school people in monopoly. Boyce puts it this way. He said, our problem at this point is that we think of the good we can do, our righteousness, as the same thing as God's righteousness. 
when actually it is quite different, quite different, our righteousness and God's righteousness. We assume that by accumulating human goodness, we can please God. Taken this way, human righteousness is like monopoly money. It's useful in the game we call life. However, it's not the currency of God's kingdom. God requires divine righteousness. Just as in America one needs United States dollars to pay bills, we find Paul making this distinction a bit further along in Romans, writing to Israel's failure to find God when he says, since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. That's Romans 10.3. That is, Israel wanted God to accept its own currency rather than the currency that Christ alone could provide them. You know, in our, in our own righteousness, which we're told is filthy rags, you can spend eternity offering your own currency, your own righteousness up to God, and it would never meet up. I've asked people before, as, as Paul writes to the Galatians, that Jesus was born under the law. Why? Why is it that God in His eternal wisdom did not send the Son of God at 30 years old to go die on the cross? Why did He make Him be born of the Virgin Mary? It is so that He would live a perfect life of righteousness, keeping God's law that we couldn't keep so that that obedience could be credited to us through faith, us who are lawbreakers. The law keeper, his righteousness, his currency is the only currency that gets people into his kingdom. Paul says there in Romans 3 that we have this captive will that the none seeks God. That's contrary to what I constantly heard for probably 20 years of growing up in the church. You can be religious and not seek God. Even primitive tribes have, have, well-developed, have, have well-developed religious concepts, yet they still won't run away from the high ideas of a high and holy God. People can claim to be seeking God in a Baptist church, in a Presbyterian church, in a Methodist church, or any other church, but in reality, they're running away from God, and they're disguising it in, in, in religion. They make their loop of religious institutions just to disguise their, their true intentions. Now, I'd referred to... Uh, James Boyce's uh, description of depravity, and if I could rely on him again. He says, according to Romans 3, no one unaided by God has, number one, any righteousness by which to lay a claim on God. Number two, has any true understanding of God. And number three, seeks God. But what we do not have and cannot and have not done, God has done for those who are being saved. What has He done that we can't do? First of all, He sought us. We ran from Him, but as the hound of heaven, that's what A.W. Tozer called the Spirit of God, the hound of heaven that snooped Him down and dragged Him to salvation. 
As the hound of heaven, God pursued us relentlessly. If God had not pursued us, we would have been lost. Second of all, not only did God sought, had God sought us, but second of all, He gave us understanding. He didn't make us alive in Christ. He did it by making us alive in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, as a result of which our eyes were open to see things spiritually. It doesn't mean that you and I understand things perfectly. But what we do understand about God, we now truly understand. In the sense that we, we believe it, we hold to it, and we respond accordingly. That is part of the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. That not only can you now comprehend spiritual truth, but you've got that compulsion to obey it. Third, God has given us a righteousness that we didn't have and could never have had on our own. His very own righteousness, which is the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the ground of our salvation. There's so much more to be said, but our time is gone. Would you pray with me? Father, as we continue our study on the doctrine of man and the doctrine of man's sin, the fall, that which results from the fall, our sin nature, might it draw us to worship and praise and adoration of the one true righteous one, the Son of God, who gave Himself not to die for the self-righteous, but for sinners, those that fall upon Him for mercy. We are those God, continue to impart your mercy in our lives as we reflect upon the greatness of the gospel. And as we take that gospel to our loved ones and our friends and our co-workers, would you be so kind as to give them repentance and a heart to believe the gospel that they would recognize as we did nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling. Thank you for that imputed righteousness of Christ for dealing with the imputed sin of Adam. We'll give you all the praise in your name. Amen.